Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. So we learned uh, last time, Christ calls us Christians because we share in the anointing of Christ. As we saw from Romans 12, it's the spirit that moves us in this process, a metamorphosis, and as a result of this, we're moving from this age to the age to come, exhorted to conform as the spirits at work in us. So now the catechism moves on to instruct us regarding what this transformation means. On the one hand, we don't want to destroy a creator-creature distinction, meaning that we want God to be God and we understand we're the creatures. However, we still have to account for the language Scripture uses. As Jesus is Son of God, so we are called children or sons of God. So if we're sons, how can we be sons and Christ also be Son uh, without compromising who Christ is as God? And does this make us uh, some sort of a God in and of ourselves? And so basically the issue is then, how can Christ be Son of God? How can we also be called sons of God? How does all this fit together? And so we'll simply divide this up into how the Catechism does it. Question answer 33, uh, dealing with God's faithful son. Question answer 34, that we are God's adopted sons. And so let's uh, consider question answer 33. Uh, this question is asking, how is Christ son, but we are also sons? And the Catechism makes this very important distinction. Christ is the only begotten Son of God. When we say Christ is begotten, or the begotten Son of God, or begotten from eternity, uh, this language is not saying that some, at some point the Father created the Son. In fact, we have that distinction in Nicene Creed, begotten, not made, right? And the point of that is that as Christ is the one who is begotten from eternity, the same attributes that make up the Father are the same attributes in the Son. So he's not created. Uh, he's not one uh, who comes into being by the will of the Father. He is always there. Uh, the Father does not create the Son because he's lonely. The Son and the Father have always existed from all eternity. And again, this isn't something we're ever going to fully wrap our minds around or comprehend I'd argue even when we get to heaven, we'll probably be praising God, uh, not only because of his glory and his holiness, but even just the majesty and, and, and the humbling effect it is of just, we can't fully comprehend who he is, uh, even as he perfects us. But we also know that Christ being eternal son, not being created, second person in the Trinity, we are sons by the adoption, by this process of adoption that has happened. And so... When we jump to Ephesians and we consider this letter, and we consider what the Catechism is teaching us regarding Christ being Son from all eternity, uh, the introduction of this letter as we consider what this letter is about, uh, obviously there's much discussion. That's usually what transpires when commentators write a book. But the 
parallel between Ephesians and Colossians. You can certainly see it. It does seem that it is written to a Gentile church, uh, meaning that it probably doesn't have a very strong Jewish background. There's probably some thought of some sort of paganism. Uh, what does it mean that here we are as, as Christians following this God who doesn't have an earthly temple? Uh, we're following this God who has walked on this earth, accomplished his will, and he's gone up to heaven. What do we do with him? And so Paul's letter to the Ephesians is that reminder, at least it seems to be that strong reminder, that while we don't have the tangible uh, religion like we would have in paganism, so again, Hebrews, tangible religion like in Judaism, Ephesians, Colossians seems to be, what do we do with these competing gods? Ephesians is, understand the richness you have in the Son of God who is seated in glory and this is actually beneficial to you. Again, sounds counterintuitive. How can our God, being away from us, not in this world in a tangible way, be beneficial to us? But that's what the book of Ephesians is assuring us, uh, that we are, in fact, not bringing Christ down, but Christ is the one who brings us up, seats us in the heavenly places, as Paul literally says in Ephesians chapter 2. And so when we consider uh, the verses here, verses 3 through 14, um, in the English, this is broken up grammatically. I'm seeing, confirming whether or not there's a period, and there is a period in verse 10. But grammatically in the Greek, this is all one sentence. And so this is one train of thought that the Apostle Paul has. So if anyone tells you the Apostle Paul is not a gifted writer or, or a man who just isn't uh, just a phenomenal thinker in terms of the clarity of mind. They need to go here. This is absolutely impressive stuff that the Apostle Paul writes. And not to say his other stuff's not impressive in any way, but this is pretty impressive to have a sentence this long uh, and to communicate the significance of Christ. And so what is he telling us about Christ? Well, notice that in verse 3 as he begins, he tells us, that this is our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're understanding there's something unique about Christ. He's equated with God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one that we worship. It is in Christ that we have every spiritual blessing. Now we think about our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Ephesians probably not chapter 1 that I'm going to appeal to for the greatest and clearest presentation of the deity of Christ. But still, by implication, we certainly see it. Because the Apostle Paul is called an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So for the Apostle Paul, and putting this in the context of Ephesians, especially Ephesians 3 when he talks about uh, basically the unity of the Jew and Gentile temple coming together in the one Christ, uh, we think of Ephesians 2.20 of where Paul equates the apostles on the authority of the prophets. I don't believe those are New Testament prophets in view, as some commentators say. But it's seeing the prophets and the apostles with Christ as a cornerstone, as a center. So certainly with the apostle Paul equating himself with the prophets called by Christ Jesus, the assumption he's making is that Jesus Christ is God, not by his creation, intrinsic to who he is. And so 
I, I think sometimes we, we can just kind of gloss over these introductions and see them as sort of peripheral matters. They don't really matter. But Paul saying, here I am as an apostle of Christ, speaking with the same authority as a prophet, as he will go on to say in Ephesians 2.20, is assuming that Christ is God. I cannot speak in the place of God. I, I cannot step up into the pulpit and say, I've received a word from the Lord. And if I receive this word of the Lord that contradicts scripture, obviously, you know, this is false. I, I, I can't do this. I can only take the words that the prophets have given me, that the apostles have given me, interpret them, and preach a sermon from those words. But the apostle Paul is actually writing inspired words from the authority of Christ Jesus, which means Christ is God. Now, when we think about what Christ has done, it's important to have that understanding of apostleship at the beginning, because otherwise, verses 3 through 14 becomes rather underwhelming. We understand who Christ is, that he's the one who communicates the blessings of God because he's God himself, able uh, to call men who can bring the inspired words of God. It tells us something about who he is. Verse 3, now, as we walk through this briefly and quickly, we have our Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, who is the Apostle Paul saying is Lord? Well, we know God the Father is Lord, but he's also saying Jesus Christ is Lord. He is presenting this as he worships Jesus on par uh, with the Father. We have in verse 4, we have now the meaning or, or the purpose of Christ entering history. Uh, that is uh, the calling there we see in verse 4 that we are chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. So the implication here is the Father and the Son are uh, working out the will of God and, and his election, his purpose. We have in verses 5 and 6, we are called sons in Christ, and Christ is named the Beloved. That's a very specific uh, title. It's identifying Christ being the true, faithful Son of God, uh, God himself by implication. Going on, we have in verse 7, we have this redemption in his blood. So again, this is calling attention much like we're going to see in Hebrews the significance of the one-time shedding of blood. There is no animal, no creature, no being that is able to do a one-time shedding of blood except for Christ Jesus, the God-man. And so this tells us the sacrifice of Christ is a sacrifice that is acceptable to God, the Father that only has to be done once, testifying that the Son is, in fact, the God-man. Going on in verse 9, uh, the manifestation, the mystery of his will, set forth in Christ. We have then, in verse 10, it is Christ who unites and holds all things together. You hear this, this is something we can only truly attribute to God himself. So like I said, Ephesians 1 Probably not the first place I would go with a Jehovah Witness uh, to establish the deity of Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 would be a good place. John chapter 1 would be another good place. But nevertheless, here we can see in Ephesians that certainly as Paul's making his case, his assumption is that Christ is God, which tells us that this church 
probably isn't struggling with the reality of whether or not Christ is really God. It's just more the implications of what do we do with a God who doesn't have a temple like the pagan gods? What do we do with a God that we say is in heaven and isn't like the pagan gods? And Paul is saying, be assured, your God is God. Now, making the case, as we'll expound more in our second point, but making the case of a distinction. So Jesus is son uh, by his nature, who he is. But notice then in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, this is an important thing here because we're seeing the purpose of why Christ enters into history, that he has done this by his will, predetermined this, that we will have these blessings. This is why Christ has entered history to secure these blessings. This has become very important when we understand the context of adoption. But nevertheless, at this point, the distinction that Paul wants us to understand, we have this blessing because the Father desired it. We have this blessing because Christ, as faithful God-man, has made a one-time shedding of blood according to the purpose of God's will. So this is very important. This means that the plan of God was not a mistake. It was not a plan B, that this was the intention of God before the foundations of the world to accomplish this redemption. And so this is intended right here to the Ephesian church, to us, if we start saying, well, why is Christ significant? Why, why does it matter that Christ is in heaven? The Apostle Paul is saying, this is a plan of God from eternity. This is what's being manifested. This is not accidental. God intended your redemption to work out the way it is working out right now. But here again is that understanding. We're predestined for adoption. It's through the work of Christ. So again, there's that distinction. We're still creatures. We, we, we don't become little gods in the sense that we're brought into the Trinity in the same way as Christ. We're still the creatures. Christ, being the God-man, enters history for the purpose of adopting us, for the purpose of securing this blessing of adoption. So we have God remaining God. We as creatures remain creatures. That's the point we're trying to make I hear from the catechism. So Christ is the one who shows the mighty hand, shows the mighty plan of God. So what is the, the significance of being adopted as sons? I mean, what, what does that really benefit us? When we look at 34, it's assuring us that as we are adopted, we are those who certainly have blessings in Christ. Uh, adoption is not because we're worthy of this calling, uh, we receive this adoption according to God's redemptive purpose. And it's important to understand that we are redeemed to be adopted because this redemption is getting at the point of what Paul's uh, making to the uh, church of Ephesus and to us today. Needing to be redeemed means we are sold into slavery. We are not in a position of equality with God meaning that we're not coming to the table, God's at one side, we're at the other side, and we're starting a bargaining uh, negotiation process of saying, well, if I do X, can I get into heaven? Uh, and how about you do X, and then, you know, I'll, I'll do the right thing. The point of redemption, we are enslaved. And we find in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, 
actually the only place where you find will attributed to man in the book of Ephesus. Every other time, or the book of Ephesians, every other time that the word is used, it's about the will of God. But when he attributes the will of man to us in Ephesians 2 verse 3, we're not presented that well. We are those who desire sin. We desire to run into the mud. We do not want to be adopted. We do not want the plan of God. It is God who grabs us by the scruff of the neck against our will and overwhelms us. And so 34 is making clear to us that we call him Lord not just to humiliate us. Obviously, there is a call for us to be, uh, to have that uh, humility before God, right? I mean, he is God. We are the creatures. We are called to bow the knee before him. Uh, he is a gracious God. But it's calling to our attention something else. He has purchased us. He has delivered us. He has set us free. And so as he has set us free, it wants us to understand that it's free from our own desires. You know, sometimes, I mentioned this in catechism, we, we can think that, you know, God's the one that has to redeem us from the devil, right? The devil's got his hand on us, and so he's this competing force to God, and, and God has to bargain with the devil. God doesn't have to bargain with the devil. Uh, Satan's very much under his domain and power and control, and that ought to assure all of us. Uh, because of Satan's unequal power, we are in a very bad predicament. And so the point of the redemption that the catechism wants to drive home is we're redeemed from our own sin, from our own misery, from what we have done in selling ourselves into the enslavement of sin. We want our sin. That's the problem of humanity. And so this redemption is grabbing us and the Lord saying, you don't want sin. You don't want to live this way. And it's not God just, you know, trying to reason with us. It's God grabbing us by the scruff of the neck and saying, you are my child. You are adopted as an heir and you are not going to live in the mud. I am going to bring you into my heavenly family. And that's what the catechism wants to drive home. So when we talk about gratitude, I mean, yes, there, there is a call for us at times to remind maybe our children sometimes of the fear of God. Listen, you, you go down a bad path you don't want to enter into the presence of God in judgment and, and outside of Christ. That's a scary place. And so there may be places where, where we remind people, but by and large, what, what, are, what are the exhortations we find in Scripture? You are a child of God. You have been adopted. You are set free. Therefore, live unto your God out of gratitude. And this is why I love how our catechism distinguishes us, that we do it out of gratitude. Yes, we can argue out of obligation. He is God. We're obligated to obey him. All humanity is. But yet we do it because of who we are as his sons. And so when we go back to Ephesians, and we understand that it is God who has predestined us. Uh, this is one of the things hopefully I brought home when we talked about the five points of Calvinism today. But one of the rich things about God predestining us, we don't deserve God. I mean, I mean, we really have to let that sink in. We don't deserve God. So we can't come to God and say, I chose you. I made the wise decision. Uh, you need to be thankful that I came to you. No, God, God doesn't owe us anything. The honest truth is we trampled his garden. We destroyed his garden. We said, we don't want you. Take a hike. We don't want you. And God said, but I can't leave you there. 
That's the beauty of the Lord's predestining or predetermining or his elective mercy, whatever you want to say, where he comes with his people and says, you are my child. And as we have this understanding of being the child of God, we come now to this issue of adoption. And as the Apostle Paul reminds us of who we are, that he predestined us in verse 5 for the adoption as sons. And when you hear that, that line, this obviously, as you can imagine, is debated. And so people say, well, what, what does Paul mean by adoption? And so this is where I think it's important to see the book of Ephesus, or the Ephesian church, uh, being more of a Gentile congregation versus what we see with Hebrews. Uh, because in Hebrews, when you have those references, you find it says somewhere, right? So the assumption is these people grew up with the Old Testament. They know where this somewhere is. In Ephesians, the, the Apostle Paul isn't really making a reference to an Old Testament adoption, which some people say that's what Paul has in mind. A passage we could appeal to would be Genesis 15, for instance, uh, where we have Abraham entering into the covenant with God. And Abraham says, what about Eliezer of Damascus? Now there's speculation as to how Eliezer became part of Abraham's household. Whatever the case, we know that Eliezer is one who is a significant uh, slave. We have in Genesis 24, by implication, Eliezer is sent to secure a, a wife for Isaac. I mean, that's something that, that when you read that and you understand Genesis 15 going on to Genesis 24, I mean, what, what was that like for that guy? Here's a guy where you have the Lord saying in Genesis 15, how this guy becomes my heir. Don't, don't worry about providing an heir through this barren couple. Just take this guy who's a slave. Here's your out, Lord. Fulfill your promise. I'll adopt him as a son, and then he can continue the legacy. Genesis 24, you see what kind of integrity Eliezer has. Because when Abram has that firstborn son, he still sends Eliezer out to find a wife for Isaac, trusting that he's going to do a proper a godly job in finding the proper wife for Isaac, his chosen son. So some say that this is the backdrop, and, and what an amazing picture. And I, I agree, it's a pretty good picture. Until you start getting into the Roman law of adoption. Because when you look at this Roman law of adoption, you hear redemption repeated through these verses. Redemption, as I've mentioned, uh, communicates being purchased out of slavery. You're not generally redeemed because you have made wise decisions. You're not generally redeemed because you are someone who has conducted yourself at all times with the utmost integrity. You're not redeemed because you're of the high class in society necessarily. Uh, there's a lot of reasons individuals in the Roman world uh, could be sold into slavery. One of those ways we can find in Roman law a commentator points out uh, that a father would rule over his house with such authority that a father could actually take a disobedient child. He could basically kick the child out of the house, disown the child. That, that's an option. But the father could also have a child executed if a child did not meet the standard that the father had for him. This would not be considered murder. This would be considered culturally acceptable. And so when, when you think about that, 
There's a lot of stress in being a firstborn son, isn't there? I mean, if, if your goal is to continue the legacy of the family, but your dad has a bad day and all of a sudden you get sent to the chopping block, there's nothing you can do. Another thing a father could do is sell you into slavery, disown you, send you away. And so what would happen in these scenarios if a father had this son that he just said, I cannot entrust you with a family legacy? You, you are not showing yourself to have the integrity that I would desire for you to continue the family line. This father would then take that son, sell him off, find another son or execute the son, find another son from another family that he would deem to be a, a worthy heir. And he would groom this child to be the firstborn son. The legality of this is that the father would make an arrangement with the other father. And as they make this arrangement, the father who's getting rid of the son, it would be lucrative for him. So he'd sell the son into slavery, uh, according to a commentator, three times. And as the son is sold into slavery three times, uh, the father that desires to have the son continue his legacy would buy this child out of slavery three times. And so you can see where this is a lucrative practice. Um, if you're sort of down in, in the social spectrum, and you want to make some money, and you got a kid that you're not exceptionally proud of, and this other guy wants to groom the son, this could be something very beneficial for you. It's an easy way to get this child out of your house and moved into another home. And so when you hear this, one of the things we can think is, well, maybe God adopted us because we're adorable, right? Maybe there's something about us that when God looks upon us, he says, you know, they're a little better than the other kids. And as they're a little better than the other kids, I'll take these ones because they're, they're kind of good. That's where you turn to verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons. Now, if we stop there, we can think that. But it's through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. When you understand Jesus Christ as we have in verses 3 through 14, being the faithful son of God, we understand that the father is not adopting us like in the context of first century Rome. He's not adopting us because he needs an heir to continue the family legacy. But as he adopts us and brings us into these inheritance rights, he still has a son who has been faithful. In fact, when we notice who Christ is, we have an inheritance, verse 11, in him. This inheritance would be what that adopted son would take over from the oldest son. He would continue the family legacy. But right here, we hear in verse 11, we share in this inheritance. It's done according to his will. We have our hope in Christ. We are those who understand that it is Christ who has been, excuse me, who has been raised from the dead. It is Christ who has seated us in the heavenly places in him as you go over and spill into Ephesians 2. And so when we have this, this language in our catechism, we have the language here of understanding being purchased in the blood of Christ. It's not by silver and gold. It's not by earthly things that, that will deteriorate. It's by the one-time shedding of Christ's blood. The other thing when you take from this understanding of adoption, you have this understanding of adoption that the, the child who's moved from the one family to the new family 
is to have the ideals of that family. So however he's groomed, however that child um, is raised up to say, here are the priorities of our household. Here's the legacy that we want to pass on. That child, that son, is expected to continue that legacy. So we can understand now, catechism talking about us living out of gratitude, being adopted, we are called to have the same priorities as our father. But when you understand this language, we're chosen before the foundations of the world. We have an inheritance in Christ Jesus. This means that Christ, who is faithful son, not disowned, not sent away, he is faithful son, who has accomplished the will of the Father. He is the one who brings heaven and earth together. The Son who has been raised from the dead is the one who shares his inheritance with us. You skip down to verses 13 and 14. You have that language then of the down payment that is made and the guarantee of our inheritance. That this language of this guarantee of our inheritance tells us that it's a Father who's actually giving us the down payment to the heavenly rest. So the intention is to clarify this adoption. In the Roman world, you, you could be adopted and disowned. You, you don't know. You, you could be purchased. Maybe you're adopted, put in a place of the air that's sent away, but it's always me hanging over your head. I sent my firstborn son away. I can send you away, right? You can understand the stress in that. I better toe the line. I might be sent away by this dad as well. I might be sold to slavery. There's no guarantee here until he dies. You can understand why there's some assassinations that happen in this culture. But nevertheless, here is where the analogy breaks down. Because the father is saying to us, I have secured you in my faithful son. So I'm not redeeming you because I, I need a legacy. I'm not redeeming you because I'm bound to time like a human being. I'm redeeming you because I chose you. You are going to share in the inheritance with my faithful son, who continues the legacy. And you will share in this inheritance because I give you the down payment in the Holy Spirit. And so when, when we have this question like the book of Ephesus, and, and, and we, we struggle with this issue of how do we know that this adoption is so good? I mean, here we certainly understand that reminder uh, to walk faithfully in our Lord. But it's that reminder of how we do this in a different power. How can Christ be son? How can we be adopted sons? Why is this encouraging? Well, it's encouraging because it fits together in a profound way. God does not need a son to continue his legacy. He has a faithful son. He did not kill his son because his son was incompetent. Ephesians 1 verse 20, clearly he raises his son from the dead. And so the son is doing something with a purpose. That purpose is so that we can be adopted as co-heirs, sharing in his inheritance. Notice then that it's the father who gives us the down payment. The father gives us the down payment. Normally it'd be the expectation of we would have to pay something or be some other exchange of funds. But it's the father who has made all the purchasing power, who now comes to us and says, here's a down payment of your heavenly inheritance. So right here at the beginning of Ephesians, if there's a temptation to think, well, how is our God better than the pagan gods? 
Why follow this God when, when Christ just comes, does his work, and goes to heaven? The Apostle Paul is saying, if Christ dwelt in a temple on this earth like the pagan gods, if Christ required continual payment like the pagan gods of this earth, then his work would be incomplete. And it would mean that your adoption is not secure. And it would mean that you do not share in this family identity. It would mean ultimately you're not guaranteed a, a heavenly rest in Christ. And so the point and the assurance here is that God does not adopt us because he's lonely. God does not adopt us because he needs somebody to continue the family legacy. God adopts us by the mystery of his own will, beyond our comprehension. As he tells us in Ephesians 2 verse 3, while we are still in sin, while we are still in rebellion against God, consciously wanting to rebel against him, he takes us into his house, says you are my heirs, you share in this family, you are redeemed in Christ, walk out of gratitude in light of this new family identity. Let us then walk in Christ, seeking to honor him, seeking to understand that we only love him because he has first loved us. Let this be something that reminds us that we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Let us discern what is pleasing to our God, not because it is just beneficial for us, but because we understand we are part of the Lord's family who have been redeemed once for all in Christ Jesus by the grace of our God. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.